Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Borderlines from the Irish Times with me, Mary Minahan. And me, Freya McClements. This podcast is about changing identities north and south, with one presenter on either side of the border, chatting to a guest who has spent time reflecting on the complex issues involved. And our guest today is the playwright and author Rosemary Jenkinson, who lives in and writes about East Belfast, as well as many, many other things I'm sure she would clarify. Her latest collection of short stories, Marching Season, is out now. You're very welcome, Rosemary. Thanks very much, Mary. Delighted to be here. Um, Rosemary, I mean, certainly to people in, in the North and Northern Ireland, you know, marching season, everybody knows exactly what this is. But there's something I just have to ask you about this. You were writing in the Irish Times a couple of months ago about marching season. Um, and I think it's the last thing anybody would expect to associate with that. You said writing a story is like having sex with a stranger in the dark. I think you're going to have to explain that for us. <laughs> yeah, that, that um, some people totally disagreed with that. What are you talking about? But uh Look, when you write a short story, you're trying to give your reader a thrill within a short time. So that's like sex for a start. And also I said it was like being with a stranger in the dark, which is like feeling your way instinctively through through the story. And you're not sure quite you have an idea where you're going to end up, but you don't know what's going to really happen on the way. So that's it is. It is. I believe it is totally like sex with a stranger in the dark. I wouldn't know, would you, Freya? <laughs> I, I was sort of try, try, trying to puzzle this out before we, uh, you know, before asking. I can't possibly think think what she might mean, you know, but... <laughs> no, yes, you need to have a few experiences to draw from to understand that analogy, Freya. <laughs> well, you start to get into sort of, you know, are you talking about, you know, so it's writing a new short story is a step into, into the unknown, but, you know, you do have some experience because you've done this before, you know, you've written several collections of, of short stories. So it's that combination of you know you've been here before you've done this this before you have an idea of how it works but you're still it it is still stepping into the dark it's stepping into the unknown because each time presumably must be slightly different but you're relying on those previous experiences to guide you completely I mean I suppose when I thought about say the stranger in the dark I was thinking about the reader and what I can uh, you know you're always trying to certainly I do I try to charm them, shock them, give them every sort of experience that they can possibly have, really. So, yeah, I think about the reader a lot and you never know what quite... I mean, I always have an ending in mind, but uh, you don't quite know how you're going to get there. That's the exciting bit. Yes, it is. Rosemary, can I ask you, when did you first feel confident enough to start calling yourself a writer? Was it something you always wanted from childhood? I certainly grew up in a house with a lot of books and it was a bookish childhood. Um, My mother was an art teacher, so I was very much used to her practicing her art. I always wanted to be a writer, but calling yourself a writer is a totally different thing. When is that justified that you can call yourself? And 
I mean, certainly I didn't call myself a writer when I'd even had my first few short stories published. I think really I needed a proper play. I needed a book. So I don't use the term lightly. I think, you know, a lot of people think they can just put a few stories out there and hey, presto, you're a writer. But it is, it's part of the vocation. It's a, a lifestyle choice. It's a big decision and, and you need to earn it, I think, to be a writer. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you certainly earned it because just from my own knowledge of you and, and sort of coming across you over the years at, at sort of different, you know, writing events or whatever, I mean, you're incredibly prolific. You know, if it's not a, another short story collection, it's another play, you know, and so much of this deals with identity as well and these really kind of complex identities in Northern Ireland and, and you're regarded as a Protestant writer. And, and I wanted to ask you about your own childhood and your sense of your identity as you were, were growing up. You know, did you have a very sort of fixed sense of identity or was it something that emerged more through your writing? Yeah, well, it's changed obviously a lot from what when I grew up. Um, I mean, I always say my, my very first image of Northern Ireland was I saw it visually that Ireland was to the south of us, England was to the north of us, and we were um, um, in the middle of hybrid no man's land, neither one nor the other. And that was my very original, you know, original thought of what being Northern Irish is um, nothing really, both, nothing and both. Uh, so it's a kind of paradox, really, what we are. And yeah, so, well, that kind of upbringing was very much, I was during the Troubles. And even though I lived in a very middle class area and it wasn't, it wasn't um, that much troubled by the Troubles, it, because we had a, we did have a, a, like a bomb scare in our street when I was seven years old. That kind of that, I wasn't allowed into my street. And I remember I was really scared and trying to find my mother. And it kind of, we sat while the army defused the bomb. I remember sitting in neighboring streets and we, people brought out cups of tea and sweets for us. And it was like, it was, I realized how fragile life was. And that even though we thought we were in our little cocoon from the troubles, it was ever so much bigger and it could impinge on you at any time. So that was a real sort of le uh, learning curve early on. And um, yeah, I mean, my identity was very British, I think, then, because, you know, you felt it. It was very much them and us. And it was... IRA bombs and you know so it was very polarized then so and that pushes you into extremes of identity which obviously since the peace process hasn't been the case. I wonder how that's changed in terms of how you regard yourself now because a little bit earlier you, you described yourself as Northern Irish and then you said about you know well, your upbringing was, was very British you know are you Northern Irish are you British are you Irish yeah, um, yes, I, I think that sounds like the Holy Trinity, British, Irish and Northern Irish. We'll take them all. Yeah, I'll take whatever actually suits me at the time and is advantageous as well as a writer. I mean, we have to accept multiple identities in this world. And yeah, there's there's a certain amount of self-interest, but it's also a certain amount of what I culturally feel. I feel a relation to everything a lot more now. I mean, certainly I would 
feel more Irish. I suppose when I came back uh, in 2002 after I went to university in 86 and I only had one visit to Northern Ireland back since from 86 to 2002, which is nothing. So really, I was completely divorced from this country. And I think, yeah, I felt I kind of got to know more. I was going to Irish language events. I was going to traditional session events. And I did then realise that there is an Irish aspect to the, the culture here that I can't ignore. And that is right cheek by jowl to what I grew up with. And so therefore, I do feel more Irish through culture. So, Rosemary, were you part of that classic brain drain that happens in Northern Ireland where young people go away to university and very often don't come back for a variety of reasons? Um, and how useful was your time away uh, in informing the work that you do now and I suppose just getting perspective on Northern Ireland? Yeah, I was part of the brain drain. In fact, I was even part of a BBC programme in 1986 on the brain drain. So... <laughs> Uh, it was the big term at that time as well. So nothing's changed, really, except, of course, a lot more of us went during the Troubles. And I always said our teachers told us to. They said, what are you doing here? And I always said they, they did a better job of ethnically cleansing Protestants than, than the IRA ever did, because they basically persuaded us to go. So um, that was it. So I did go and I kind of realised in England that it was a much more boring country. You know, the excitement, I think Northern Ireland is much more interesting. And even though there, England has sort of, it's culturally diverse with so many immigrants, it it isn't quite as fascinating because the cultures aren't so interwoven as the British and Irish culture is in Northern Irish, in Northern Ireland. So when I went to England, I did try to write. I started trying to write. I had lots of different jobs and I also tried to write on the side and it didn't really connect. I didn't feel any place that I could connect there. I mean, my parents lived in a small town. They moved. That, that was another thing. The, the weird thing was as soon as I left university, I had no home to come to back to in Northern Ireland because my parents left to live in Berwick-upon-Tweed, a tiny town in on the border with Scotland. And I didn't feel connected to Berwick-upon-Tweed or anything. So nowhere, really, I went to university at Durham. So no connection there. So it really, the nostalgia hit me. And I thought that I really had to come home. And that was obviously the right place. I suppose instinctively, my, my inner writer was telling me, go home. <laughs> So I did. Even though there was no home, I, I made my own home. I think you're the first person I've ever spoken to who's sort of compared Northern Ireland and England as, you know, England's more boring and Northern Ireland yeah. is, is more interesting. But I, I kind of know what you mean. And, and one of the things about your work is that I think you look at, I think you look at life actually, not, not just your writing in a sort of a slightly different way. And a lot of what you write is also really, really funny and I'm, I'm thinking of some of the things like your Michelle and Arlene series of plays so the, these are sort of based around the premise that Michelle O'Neill the Deputy First Minister Sinn Féin and Arlene Foster who, who was then the, the Northern Ireland First Minister from the DUP and they sort of become 
big friends after this kind of mad girls weekend, you know, and there, there's some, there's a real sort of Northern thing about that in terms of that way of using comedy or satire to make serious points, but also to talk about things that would be much harder to talk about otherwise, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, satire is particularly a Northern Irish strength because our politics are, are satirical without even trying to portray them as such. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I pushed it to the extreme. Um, they were lovers in, in this play. And, you know, and, and why not? Why not? Um, I mean, it's it's that whole thing about the, the two enemies are, are so full of hatred they love each other and that's really a, a kind of metaphor for for northern irish politics sort of there is love there's some sort of love there because we're so intertwined and inter interrelated and in every way so uh but humor also uh it's the only way to approach northern ireland with uh black humor because it's the way we coped in the troubles and we still cope with modern absurdities as Brexit and everything. Can I ask you, Rosemary, you talked about when you first went to England and then you maybe surprised yourself a little by going to Irish language events and traditional music events and maybe it brought you to a different place in terms of your identity. Do you think that would have happened if you hadn't have gone to England? I know it's, I think, a common enough experience for people from a Protestant unionist background in Northern Ireland who go to England and are the immediate assumption is they're Irish, they're nationalist. Like, was that a shock to you at first? I mean, I felt that being Northern Irish and a Protestant was not cool. And yeah, there was a lot of people, yeah, at that time who said, get out of their country. What are you doing there? Um, so, you know, again, that was during Troubles time and that was much more polarized and but um yeah that, that's a very the one is interesting about coming back and how do you feel uh, or does that make it easier it did make it easier because I didn't have any friends from my past I had no school friends I hadn't kept in touch all of us had just been away for so many years and actually most of my school friends also left so we were scattered really so we could say a huge diaspora, but except we weren't united in it at all, which is very typical of Protestants. We all just go our own way and don't club together. We're not very clubbable. Um, and that's our sort of dissident individual tradition. So um, when I came back, yeah, I met a lot of much more people from a Republican background because they were the ones that I met just in the pubs. Uh, as I said, I was going out to see musics and I would meet them in the pubs. And if I hadn't have come back, I would never have had more Republican friends than um, unionist or loyalist friends or even neutral friends. So that definitely, they brought me into their world. I mean, it's a very different thing watching from the outside, but for being brought in and explained the culture and the history was so much better for me. And so that's what happened. When you were in England and people were saying to you, get out of their country, what are you doing there? These were English people saying that to you. Is that right? 
Yeah, English people. Many English people at my university had been um, on trips to the falls. I realized a sort of this is to to show them the conflict if they were in, if they were politically interested. So you would get you definitely get people who had already predetermined ideas in England. There's, there was a lot of interest in the conflict at that time. So yeah, it was it was tough because you don't want to be I wanted to be part of England or well to meld a lot more and yet you're kind of immediately um yeah associated with negativity as if you have caused the whole problem from day one which is ridiculous but people people still believe that I I sort of have a a theory that everybody from Northern Ireland needs to go away for a a period of time and then should come back because it gives you a different perspective. And both myself and Mary went away to university as well and then chose to come back. And, you know, I mean, I I really think, you know, if the executive, you know, could put up the money for every 18 year old sort of to go somewhere for for a year, you know, I I think it would make a huge difference. And and particularly when you grow up during the troubles and when you suddenly go away, you realise actually it's not like that, that 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 wasn't normal. And Mary's written sort of really well about this as well in terms of, you know, sort of seeing like English bobbies walking down the street and realising, you know, that not all policemen had, you know, heavy weaponry and, and you know, bulletproof vests and stuff. And I, and, and I just wonder what you think about, you know, you do have a different perspective when you've been away and, and you come home, don't you? Definitely. And of course, I was called, yeah, somebody shouted out Paddy at me in the street. And I'm not even, they had to shout it about a hundred times. I'm like, that, that can't be, it's not possible. You know, um, a Northern Irish Protestant, this doesn't, this doesn't happen. And yeah, all of those experiences. Yeah. And, and yeah, in my interview, the lecture saying you know you're very medieval in northern ireland i I mean i was studying medieval literature but it was like yeah you're so yeah you're a conflict is medieval and it was like yeah and now we see you know it's so strange like now you have that terrorism obviously from islamic fundamentalists you know and and it's strange to sort of see that we were kind of considered like that in those days you know the fun we were all fundamentalists which we weren't so yeah it's a very strange but I, I totally agree with you about going away and in fact I did have an experience this was in my early 30s I went to Palestine and that also gave me a huge it gave me another perspective on a conflict that wasn't Northern Ireland and also kind of made me understand how maybe it would have been perceived from a Republican side in West Belfast, all the kind of militarised. I mean, I grew up obviously with the same, not the same militarisation, but I saw police and, and army people everywhere, but it didn't, it wasn't a threat, you know, whereas I can understand that it was a threat to some, but for me, it wasn't. It was just sort of a protector rather than a threat. So it's those completely differing mindsets that you only get from being really away. It's interesting because it's all about perspective, isn't it, Rosemary? Yeah. And did you come up against that thing? This is changing now a lot, but I think probably when when you were starting out, there was that sense that nationalists and Republicans were more dominant in the arts. Now, there were various reasons for that, but not only that, but they had better control of their own 
uh, if you like, political and historical narrative. Was that something you experienced and perhaps found a bit frustrating? It, it is difficult because, yeah, I, that's the dominant narrative throughout Ireland. So it obviously has a huge, um, the nationalist perspective is a lot stronger and a lot, just many more followers. Um, you know, it's a minority thing. So, um, and I think there's that negative colonial aspect to being uh, from that uh, Protestant background. And I mean, it's almost like it's very difficult to use history because it is awkward. I mean, I was I was even thinking like uh, my ancestors, the original Jenkinsons would have come over via um uh, well, it was thought, my uncle did research and he thought it was through the Cromwellian army and that it was given mon- land instead of money. So, and that is an incredible, awful thing to think of because that makes me hated immediately within Ireland. It's it's like, so the, the, these are really awkward and horrible sort of things. But it, I mean, it was a historical fact and, uh, you know, he came from Northern England and for whatever reasons, wanting to make a better life and to be paid as a soldier, you know, but these are very awkward things, I feel. And that's probably not as awkward. No nationalist, I don't think, has something as awkward as that. Well, many nationalists do through the whole intermarriage. They will have these awkward things, but they will conveniently forget about them, probably. But I just feel that you always feel that you're not liked, really, as a Protestant Northern Irish person, that you're the fly in the ointment, the the one thing stopping the unity. And it just feels sometimes when you write, I mean, I, I write mainly about modern things rather than history, because I'd much rather confront them than the old sores of the past. So that's one way, really, of, of getting around awkward historical things. And um, uh, But I mean, I think there is there has been a huge rise in and confidence in Protestant writing, because we realise that, you know, people do want to hear these stories. They are interesting. It's a matter of perspective and everybody should hear different perspectives. So, you know, I'm very glad that there is increasing interest in it. But having said that, I also don't want to be pigeonholed. That's the whole aspect. It's interesting when you sort of talk about all of this and your own family sort of ancestry. I mean, that's going sort of back to the 17th century. So your family have been here for a long, long time. And I can't imagine that anybody would say, well, you know, you've as much right to be here as anybody else would and to be part of that conversation. But I'm I'm thinking of, you know, a lot of the dialogue that's going on at the minute around the United Ireland's or border poles or shared island islands and, and all of this. And th- there is a narrative that sort of almost that, well, unionists just have to, you know, they have to be, this is happening anyway, so they have to be part of this and they, they have to just sort of talk about this and, and, and accept that. And, you know, the criticism that people from a unionist background will sometimes make is that, well, it's not a conversation if the end is predetermined. You know, is there a way of having these conversations and of making them inclusive and of coming to some sort of solution that works for everybody? Well, I don't think there's a problem in talking about the possibility of a border poll because uh, it, the end game is not decided. The vote will decide that, which has nothing to do really with the discussions beforehand. So 
I have no problem about talking about that. And I think that um, unionists should definitely talk about it. I, I don't think it, anything should be off the table and vetoed. Uh, you know, free, we have freedom of speech. Um, everybody should be talking about this. And I think for me as a writer, I mean, a border poll would be wonderful because I would have loads of writing material to write about. You know, upheaval is great. I've always said that for writers. So we welcome change. And yeah, all of those difficult conversations. So yeah, I think definitely there needs to be more discussion on the border and what to do about it. Can I ask you, Rosemary, when you were growing up, what was your impression of the Republic? And I suppose, what is it now? And, and how has it changed over the years? When I was a child, we went to Ackill Island a couple of summers because my aunt was Southern Irish and um, we would go there. We'd go amethyst hunting and it was wonderful. I loved it. Yeah, I had good experiences of Southern Ireland, very good ones. There was that whole thing that people from the north thought that it was a bit of a primitive country in terms of infrastructure. So there was that kind of bias there, definitely, and, and maybe a slightly lofty feeling that we were we were ever so much wealthier up in Northern Ireland and things. So there was there was that perspective. You're listening to Borderlines. We'll continue our conversation with Rosemary Jenkinson after this short break. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Borderlines. Today we're talking to Rosemary Jenkinson about culture, identity, and her belief that fiction writers shouldn't focus on the troubles too much. We, we've sort of talked a lot about identity and things like that, but not, not quite so much about, about your own work in, in, in regard to this. And I'm just thinking of, you know, some of these things we've been talking about um, 
you know, the sort of things you write about and you do, you write a lot about the troubles, but also the outworkings of, of the troubles and, and sort of the contemporary issues and where, where we are now. And, and you were writing in the Irish Times recently, you wrote, I don't want to be pigeonholed as a troubles writer, a post-conflict writer or a Protestant writer just because I'm Northern, I, I'm from Northern Ireland. I choose to be a universal writer, neither confined by the country I come from, the body I was born into, nor the era I've lived through. You know, how much choice does a writer really have in, in these things? You know, these are the big things that have happened in your lifetime and you write about them? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't write about the troubles. I've never written directly about the troubles. Everything is through the prism of the present, looking back at the troubles. So I'm not interested in the troubles. I, I Well, maybe in memoir form, but certainly not in fictional form or play form, because I think... Um, well, I think it's largely over, but... But it isn't. It's still rumble. I'm interested in the present rumblings that could potentially unleash another troubles scenario. Um, and, and I suppose a border poll, we always think that, you know, there could be some sort of trouble scenario depending on the vote. So I suppose I'm interested in that uh, way. But I suppose, yeah, it's a difficult, yeah, it's a difficult one to say. Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe it just it just depends on your interpretation because I suppose a lot of people will say that the troubles is still inherent in in absolutely everything here, but it's the you're more interested in the contemporary outworkings of of this. Yeah, but I mean, I do think I have said in the fort piece I wrote for Fortnite that I do believe that it is uh, there's too much about the troubles right now, and it is it is a very easy default position for writers to slide into and 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 even though I totally get that there's trauma that still has to be worked through and I wouldn't deny anyone the right to work that through but I do feel that since Anna Burns also came out with our huge troubles novel I do think there may be a there could be a slight copycat reverberation through that and Writers need to do their own thing and they should also accept that I don't think there should be too many, too much, so much troubles, plays or fiction. I think that they should accept that or question actually what is the need for all this troubles work? I mean, what, what, what is, how can you make it so different from what has gone before. I think that's my very question about Trouble's work. I suppose just for context, you wrote the piece in Fortnite, which you mentioned, and Fortnite is a long-running magazine based in Belfast with, uh, I suppose, an honourable tradition of amplifying the intersection between politics and culture and the arts. Your piece, Rosemary, had the headline, The Troubles with Northern Irish Literature. It was a long piece, but you mentioned, among other things, what you call the retrogressive gaze and the idea of writers feasting on the corpse of the troubles. We should tease out the many ideas you had in the piece, but I suppose I first of all wanted to ask, had you any regrets about writing that piece, given the fairly explosive impact it had in the North and Northern Ireland? I hit it hard, the subject very hard, so I don't regret it because I think what I was saying was perfectly valid but I mean, certainly I was surprised by the outpouring and I realised that there, I had a sensitive nerve. Um, so 
while I was saying no regrets, I I didn't mean to stir such a hornet's nest. Certainly not. I, I, I sort caught me by surprise the strength of feeling. And but I do think that writers of all uh, should be the ones who accept criticism and and look to why there might be criticism and and really be very open. It surprises me if writers are very angry and sensitive and closed on certain subjects. Uh, we should we should be the most liberal and open of all. Where did the reaction come most strongly, Rosemary? Was it Twitter or where did you get this big reaction? Oh, yeah. Uh, Twitter. Well, Twitter. Well, the, obviously you had an article in, in the Irish Times against it as well. But um, Twitter which you then obviously, responded to as well. Which I responded to. Well, you have to, you have to, you can't, uh, you can't completely left. Uh, I mean, I, I talked to my publisher about it, Alan Hayes, and he, we kind of said, said that it would be good to reply rather than just let it go because you can let these things go and just it's fine but I so yeah um I was happy to respond and um but uh, yeah obviously I mean Twitter is obviously the most nasty sort of area for people to vent and and they're not really their, them their themselves their rational selves it's more of that kind of gut instinct and it's a pack animal thing on Twitter which is the the unfortunate thing about it so um yeah so it was a good let's say it was a good reaction and it's good to have that debate I mean I was glad that there was a response to in the Irish Times and that we had this debate because it needs to be talked about like why is the troubles right now why is there so much of it I said about Kenneth Branagh's Belfast coming up. What is it right now that is, is it a distraction from the current politics, the Brexit, the protocol? What is, you know, there's a lot of questions for this. Why, why is, why are we looking at the past? Is it because it's um, inconvenient to look at the present or much more convenient to turn away from the present? I, I don't know, but, you know, these are questions that writers should be having in Northern Ireland. Do you not think maybe it's a generational thing, Rosemary, like some of the writers you mentioned? Uh, I suppose Kerry Doherty's Thin Places and Seamus O'Reilly's Did You Hear Mommy Died, Alex O'Neill, The Troubles With Us. They're, they're all younger writers and they're kind of coming of age now. Uh, is it not that maybe that they are, they're finding a voice in the way that um, an older generation had a whatever you say, say nothing kind of attitude that was was drummed into them beaten into them over the years yeah in memoir I can completely understand that more than through fiction I can understand it through that um and it's a kind of outworking of the past and and uh, and how it also affects the present I mean uh, that's what I do and I appreciate people who do that but I would think that it's just so much fictional and I do think there what whatever you say you say nothing hasn't been really operating since uh, the Good Friday Agreement. I think during the peace process, we've had plenty of plays about the troubles, certainly on stage, plenty through Owen McCafferty, uh, was it silent, and, um, silent. And, you know, so there has been a lot over the years. I'm just... I'm just saying that right now, I think I think it, what it is, it's English publisher, British publishers jumping on that and kind of really 
Um, Because I was saying about when I wrote in the article I wrote about, it's the journalists coming out with top 10 troubles novels. You know, it's like we're in a genre. And this was the whole thing. I was saying we cannot be pigeonholed and pushed into writing about the troubles through outside journalism and publishing. So I do. Yeah, that's what I am objecting to, really, that push from outside. Have have you ever felt any pressure to uh, write work that fulfills these external expectations as you see them? Um, well, I would tend to resist any <laughs> any external and ply my own path um, in, in that sense. I suppose. Oh, there's definitely, and I I do think in playwriting, and there has always been this that you're expected to um, write the great sort of definitive play about what Northern Ireland is like for Protestants. Certainly I would be. I think you're very much put in your hole and expected to do the Protestant perspective. This is Rosemary. She will write the Protestant perspective for us. But actually, as in Michelle Narlene, as you pointed out, Freya, I like doing both as well. And people don't like that so much. They like to put you, make sure you're in your own category. And how do you feel, Rosemary, when... um you know, certain writers are grouped together because of their cultural heritage, maybe Jan Carson, Wendy Erskine, yourself. You know, do you like that? Is it beneficial for you? Uh, Does it feel false? Like, is there a sense of camaraderie? Well, we certainly have things in in common to say, but I mean, all writers are individual. And I mean, I see them a lot. So there is that camaraderie at events. But I mean, we're completely individual and we're not comparing notes in any way. Mm. I certainly don't want to write the same things or be influenced. That's one of the things I also said in the Fortnite article, that I don't want us all to be doing the same thing and reading reading each other too much. And that can be a real negative. I I don't want to be part of a movement. That's certainly something I would be very resistant against because I think writers should be completely unique. So I don't think it's helpful, but I do think that maybe it gets us some group publicity, which is also, you can say, is a good thing. So, you know, there there are swings and roundabouts, but uh, essentially I don't want to be part of a a Protestant female writing group. We sound like the Derry Girls, like the... (laughs) A girl band or something. The, the, the East Belfast girls or something. The East Belfast girls. That's us. Yeah, that's us. We actually will start doing that. That's our next event. Thanks, Freya, for that. Not at all. You're, you're, you're very welcome. Um, I mean, to, just on that, you know, you've recently talked about the East by which we obviously mean East Belfast is the current creative hotbed of Belfast. And there is a sense that it's an area that's kind of, you know, really up and coming in that sense. And I think it's fair to say that you're one one of the, the writers and the creatives at the heart of that. I mean, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, uh, I suppose it has. It's There's been quite a lot of regeneration in that area. And there's also a lot. Actually, there's. it's also been very much more integrated Um you know, there's social, very much mixed social housing here. So it's not its own Protestant heartland. That, even though it it still keeps that overall identity, but it is a much, much more diverse community. Um, more, yeah, more ethnic minorities coming in. So it is, it is hugely, it is an, 
an interesting area. And I think the, there's a lot of artists, studios, so it's more of a kind of hip place. But I mean, what I'm probably most interested in is the kind of loyalist areas I write about. I write about, I live in one and, you know, I, I would find that very interesting in terms of the grittiness as well. It gives you urban grit in your writing. So there's still that, but but there is more kind of um, literary magazines like, well, it's actually a music magazine, but it takes literature like Dig With It has come out. There's just, there's a bit more of a cultural outpouring in East Belfast, which is a good thing. And of course, the C.S. Lewis Centre also is an arts hub. So it is a happening place culturally. So get 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 down to East Belfast. I, 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 there's one, one one last thing that I want to to ask you. But you talked about you know black humor and you know all the funny material that's all around you and high upheaval it, it is great. You know what, what what would be your you know what what's the thing you're dying to write about now? You know what's the thing that you've seen on the news or you've heard's happening and you're thinking this is just perfect. You know this has just been handed to me on a plate. <laughs> I can't. Freya, never ask a writer that. <laughs> you know, there are, there, are know hundred, there are hundreds of writers sitting out there going, um, what's my next idea? Oh, oh, and, and then they wouldn't even realise that if I'd said something and, and they would suddenly be influenced and there I'd lose my uh, unique idea. perspective. My killer idea, that high concept that we all we all uh, search for. So um, yeah, so there never there never really is like that. It doesn't usually come out like that. That you just have one killer idea. You've got a few killer ideas circulating um, from one time. Yeah. So I have a few ideas. Yeah, on the boil. Watch this space. You never know. It could be about. Sex with a stranger. We could go back to that again. <laughs> what is it? Se- Full se- circle. Sex with a stranger in the dark. Don't forget the darkness. Oh, you can't, couldn't forget that. No, no, it's a vital component. That was Rosemary Jenkinson ending our discussion on a positive and somewhat spicy note. Next week, we're talking to the author of Did You Hear Mommy Died, Seamus O'Reilly, about the porous border between Derry and Donegal and the type of black humour that is particular to Northern Ireland. That's on Borderlines every Monday from me, Freya McClements, and me, Mary Minahan, and our producer, Declan Conlon. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.